0: Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us to see you very clearly this morning in what we read? Lord God, we don't want to misunderstand you. We don't want to see you incorrectly. Lord Jesus, I believe that you have every single one of us here this morning at this particular point, at this particular part of Scripture, because you want to reveal yourself to us. As you say about your disciples continually, they They know who I am. They realize that I have come from you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have that realization this morning that you have truly come from God the Father. Lord Jesus, would your spirit be at work in our heart? Would you shine your light in there? Would you light us up inside? Would you go to work in our heart, sifting through us, investigating those things that are not of eternal value, And would you transform us? John chapter 17 this morning. We are right at the very end of chapter 17, this passage which is called the High Priestly Prayer. We're going to take our reading from verse 20. Just to recap, Jesus has not yet arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. This is on the night that he is betrayed. He has left the upper room and in between John records this amazing passage of scripture, John 17. We've heard that there have been throughout Christian history a whole lot of different teachers who have even had up to 30 or 40 different sermons just out of this chapter. Praise God. That information is there. But this morning what I believe the Lord wants us to focus on out of these verses, is really simple. This last section that we're looking at here of John chapter 17 is Jesus is praying for another group of people he hasn't prayed for yet. And verse 20 says this, My prayer, Jesus speaking to the Father, is not for them alone. Talking about the disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. What we're talking about this morning is oneness. This is Jesus' prayer here, that all those who would come to believe in Jesus through the message of his disciples would be one. That's you and that's me. And a little picture says this, find someone who looks at you the way a Christian looks at the chance to argue with another Christian. I was preparing this this morning and my wife said to me, Bob, you can't put that up. And I've said, the problem is it's true. It's a little bit funny and it's a little bit offensive for the same reason, that as Christians we don't always get along with one another. I know that will shock and amaze no one. (laughs) We don't get along. We don't always experience this oneness that Jesus is talking about here. We don't experience this unity that Jesus is talking about. And the difficulty here is, how does Jesus define this group of people? Those who will believe in me through their message. We heard earlier on this morning the writings of Athanasius. Um, I love studying Christian history, the way it spreads uh, around the world, the way it shapes culture, the way it shapes identity and, and thinking and philosophy and all those sorts of things. But the spread of Christianity means that there are Christians of all different flavors, all different types, all different shapes and sizes and cultures and colors. And when we come to interacting with other groups of Christians, the problem is that Jesus here says that the world may believe. Our interaction with other Christians has an effect on what the world believes about Jesus. This is a high-status thing. So who are these people that have come to believe in Jesus through the message of his apostles? If you are interested, I recommend that you go away and have a look at a thing called Apostolic Succession. Wikipedia has actually some really good material to start with. We don't finish with Wikipedia, but we start with Wikipedia sometimes to link into other articles because for you and I, 2,000 plus years after the time of Christ, we have a Bible in our hands. Early Christians didn't have this. They had some collections of some scriptures and it took hundreds of years for those collections to come together for them to start the process of analyzing and going through textual similarities, looking at the vocabulary of the authors, looking at, at the way that some texts conflicted with others, sifting through them. There is no more scrutinized work in human history than particularly the New Testament documents that we have. And we have tens of thousands of copies that come into existence within a very short period of time directly after the events. We have more than a thousand times the evidence for the person of Christ than we have for the person of Julius Caesar. All right. So if someone is telling you that this is a human invention, the research suggests otherwise. And un- there are other religions in the world which have sacred texts which have not been allowed to be open to scrutiny the way scripture is. I know I've mentioned this before, but in the late 90s, they even started punching tiny little holes through some of the ancient documents that we have to do DNA testing to see if some of the skin cells or sweat rubbed off the hand of the scribe as they were writing it to be able to follow and to track the history of how these documents were copied. But the people that we read about themselves in the New Testament, these apostles through their message, the immediate followers followers of Jesus Christ, we have some record as well of where they ended up. This little collection of documents that I have here starts with a guy called Ignatius of Antioch who lived around the time of 115 AD. He was a student of John the Apostle. And we have the writings of Ignatius. And then we have the writings of the person that he taught and the schools that he went to. And this flow and effect happens all around the world. Let me read out some. So the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, so, which is in Turkey, they claim that the apostle Andrew, so the brother of Peter, was its founder. We know that the Roman Catholic Church says that they were planted by Peter the apostle. But we also have Mark the evangelist who writes the Gospel of Mark, we have the Apostle Paul, we have James, we have Bartholomew, Jude, Thaddeus, we have all of these other ones, even Timothy, uh, Philip, the evangelist, who travel around the world and in all of these different peculiar corners across Russia and into Ethiopia, we find groups of Christians who claim apostolic succession, that they are these people, they are among those who will believe in Christ through the message of the Apostles. So what do we think, 2017 Kerrang Baptist Church? Someone brought the good news of Jesus Christ to you and they got it from somewhere. It came to them from somewhere and it came to them from somewhere and from someone. See, this hope that we have gets passed on Verbally, And here Jesus is talking about the relationship that you and I have with one another, other recipients of this message, other people who are in exactly the same boat as us. Coptic Christians, Eastern Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholic Christians, Greek Orthodox Christians, Ethiopian Christians. In Australia there are over, I think, 10,000 denominations represented So what does Jesus mean when he says that all of them may be one Have a look at the language here Sorry let me go back to one that's got verse numbers on it Verse 22 I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one What is Jesus talking about that we might have, as it says in verse 23, complete unity. For many years, and maybe you've received this teaching, some of us have been taught that this means we all have a singular doctrine or a singular set of beliefs or even a singular organizational structure. I don't know about you, but I have had conversations with other Christians and they believe when we actually all adhere to the same organizational structure. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I'm not convinced. You see, when we look in the New Testament, we see the disciples couldn't agree with each other. We see that Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree with each other. We see that James and Paul couldn't agree with each other. We see that Paul and Peter couldn't agree with each other. And they go to different places and they function differently. In the New Testament, we see more than one kind of organizational structure. We see different setups. So if we're talking about oneness, the oneness that Jesus here is talking about is not a uniform organizational structure. It's not uniformity based on photocopying one another. It's not even uniformity based on agreeing about all things because we see the apostles in the New Testament disagreeing with each other as well. You see, Jesus here says that the, the unity they want to have, verse 21, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that's the oneness that Jesus is talking about. It's based on the relationship between the Father and the Son. And if we're going to talk about oneness for us, what that looks like in our church, in our marriages, in our families, between Christians of different sorts, we have to look at the relationship of the Father and the Son. You see, the Father does not become the Son. And the Son does not become the Father. It is, not the, it is not the Son who sends the Father into the world. And it's not the Father who is crucified. There is a distinctness. And they defer to one another and they actually give glory to one another. Jesus says continually, I only do what the Father tells me to do and what I see the Father doing. He defers to the father's leadership. And the father places all authority on the son, as Jesus says, to judge the living and the dead. They defer to one another. They have a distinctness, but being distinct and having a different way of operating does not mean that they are separate or cut off from one another. They give each other glory. And I suggest that Jesus is not giving us this model of oneness by accident because I think maybe you and I are a little bit distinct from one another as well. Silent, solemn, nodding heads. Okay. Maybe there are some things about your personality which are not part of my personality. Maybe there are some things about the way I operate which are not part of the way you operate. Maybe we have some distinctness going on, but Jesus prayed that we would... Know this kind of oneness. You see, they're distinct, but they're not separate. But at the same time, they're not mixed together into one personalityless blob. If we're talking about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, I know a lot of times people try to get a word picture or something to help understand what is the nature of God. And we, one picture that comes up all the time is people go, Oh, but like water, because you know, water can be ice or it can be steam or it can just be water and go yeah but but in the middle it's still a blob and the word picture is useful but it has a limitation because at no point does the oneness of god turn god into a blob and when god calls us to oneness we don't lose our distinctiveness even when we interact with other christians why on earth is jesus talking about oneness because this is what he prays for he could have asked for anything for you and for me. But what he asks for is that we might be one, that we might have unity, not just you and I, but everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we've mentioned already, verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our interactions with each other do something of eternal consequence our living and experiencing of this oneness, how we function together, how we glorify one another or lift one another up, how we trust each other or defer to one another. Jesus says here that this is the evidence to the world that he has truly come from God the Father and that God has put in us the same love that he gives to Jesus. Your attitude towards another follower of Jesus Christ is of central significance to God. Your relationship to other Christians means something. My relationship to other Christians means something. It is proof to the whole world that either the love of God is in us or not. If we have a a room full of 100 Christians, 100 people that say we believe in Jesus, he is ours and we are his and we cannot work together and we cannot find a way of of having unity and having fellowship, it is a statement about God that is being made. It says something loud and clear to this world about whether God is telling the truth or not. So if someone looks at you and the relationship you have with other Christians, what will they say about your Father in heaven? I hope you can see this morning that our capacity to disagree with each other, to be distinct from one another and yet love one another is paramount. If it wasn't important, Jesus would not have prayed for our unity and our oneness on the night that he was betrayed. What's at stake here is far more valuable than our reputation or our pride or personal injury. What's at stake here is the good news about Jesus himself. So we have some work to do because there's two things we're really good at and the problem is both of them are dangerous things. We are good at going along with the crowd and not being distinct. That's one thing we're really good at. The other thing is we're really good at disagreeing in a completely non-loving way. See, if we're called to have oneness with other Christians, we need to become experts at being distinct and disagreeing with each other and yet having such love for one another that it witnesses to the love of God being present in us. See, if we simply go along with whatever is happening in our world, we lose our distinctiveness as Christians. We end up adopting the views of the world and saying, oh, that's godly, and we water down the transformation that God wants in our life. We end up getting sucked into materialism, greed, trusting ourselves rather than trusting in God, and our culture will train us to enjoy lust and envy, and greed, and always wanting stuff, and thinking that wanting stuff all the time is normal. Even that Christmas is about wanting stuff all the time. We can even go along with other people who claim to follow Jesus without actually being able to think through why we've ended up doing things differently. Make a point here. This is the reason I ask you to get your Bible out every week and to make notes in it for yourself or to highlight it or to bring a notepad is because we need to be grounded in God's word, referring back to it, not in the word of any teacher. We must continually exercise wisdom. We must return to the word. We have to be measuring things all the time. And this means there's going to be disagreements between Christians because when we come to the scriptures, we need to be able to sit down and to go, all right, this is what I'm reading maybe this is not what my church is practicing maybe this is not what someone else's church is practicing but we come back to the word so if when you look at your life maybe this is something for you that the lord has his finger on this morning is there a pattern of behavior where you are inclined to continually going to go along with the ways of the world or even the ways of a church even practices in a church without thinking about what God says? Because it's easy for us to look at other people who call themselves Christian and say, oh, their church doesn't practice what is actually biblical. Is it our default setting as well to go along with the practices of our own church without questioning whether or not they are biblical? We need to be people of the word, even if it becomes uncomfortable for us. If that is the pattern of behavior that the Lord has his finger on in you this morning, I would like to challenge you this morning to become really good at saying a phrase like this. I don't know what scripture says about that. I'm not sure scripture agrees with that. I'm not convinced that's what the author meant. I need to look at this more. How do we know that that's what God actually wants? Here's a really good one. This one will we'll pick a fight with a whole bunch of people at the moment. I've heard the arguments and I disagree. Let's read the Bible together. That's a great one. Let's read the Bible together. See, the problem, the problem is that we can look at this idea of oneness and think that it means giving up our brain or leaving it at the door. But oneness is very different to that. Oneness means being able to engage with other Christians and even be able to disagree passionately and yet love one another. The second thing, maybe we're really good at disagreeing, but too often it is loveless. Sometimes in an effort to avoid the ditch of simply going along with everything, we run straight across the road and into the other ditch, which is disagreeing with everything and maybe not being very loving at all. See, it's easy for us to argue poorly. Who here has ever been in an argument and you come away going, I never want to go near that person again, not because of the content but because of the way that things played out. We have these experiences. We have these effects on other people. It is really easy for us to argue poorly. It's easy for us to give in to fear, to be belittling people, making fun of people, calling them names, gossiping behind their backs, threatening them, trying to hurt them emotionally or trying to control them by bullying them. These are all things which I and probably you have seen Christians do to each other. Sometimes it is between churches. I've shared with you before some of the stories that I've been, people have shared with me since I moved to Kerrang, stories about Christians attacking Christians, still very real and vivid in people's memories. Sometimes these behaviours go on between churches, sometimes between denominations, sometimes in church meetings, sometimes in ministry team meetings, or even debating with other Christians in public about a particular topic. There are, there are disagreements that I avoid on Facebook or on any social media because what happens is not so much that the topic itself gets debated, but the interpersonal arrows which people fire at each other, the derogatory language which comes out from people who claim to belong to Christ is just extraordinary. It also happens that if we argue poorly Christianity can get hijacked by a bunch of other things that say, oh, this is actually a religious issue, when in reality it's a political issue. This is one example. This is a map of Ireland. And when people talk about the conflict that goes on in Ireland, who are the two groups that get talked about? Protestants and Roman Catholics. It, it doesn't enter into a lot of the public consciousness that it's actually a political war which goes on, a political civil war. The problem is that it gets Christianity gets sucked into it and all of a sudden it is God's name which gets dragged through the mud because Christians are not very good at being able to disagree in a loving way, being able to step back and say, actually, even if I disagree with you, I'm not going to treat you that way. I'm not going to speak to you that way. There are way too many examples to mention but the point is that what is worse than the political exploitation of christianity is that the gospel is undermined i've heard recently some people saying if you're really a christian then you need to vote for happens every election i've shared before there was there was a a letter which was written by uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, an open letter to the American church saying what you guys do with Christianity in your politics is deeply concerning for the rest of the world because being a Christian does not necessitate voting for a particular political party. That is an abuse of Christianity. That is a pollution of the pursuit of Christ. If we are pursuing Christ and if, if we are seeking oneness, we need to be able to step back and go, actually, you know what? Maybe I disagree with everyone and that's okay. Maybe I agree with 15 different things that are going on, but they're all mixed together. We need to be able to articulate articulate what is going on. So this plays out in our relationships that we disagree sometimes in a very unloving way. It plays out with our colleagues, with our friends, with our families, And with our marriages, there's been a lot in the news recently about about even Christian marriages or marriages between ministers and their spouses being abusive relationships. Anthea said, if I mention that this morning, everyone's going to be staring at her. Chat to her later. Ask her anything you want. I haven't worded her up. But this is real, okay? If Christianity was interested, in being loving and of going, okay, what, what is at risk here is the reputation of, of God himself, is the very gospel, then we need to shine a light in on unloving behaviors in the life of the church. We should never have needed a royal commission in this country. As representatives of Jesus Christ, there should have been no sweeping of anything under the carpet. If we are interested in pursuing Christ and representing him faithfully, it should never have had to be forced on any group of Christians by a government organization. What are we talking about? Here are some things which are not very loving behaviors and here are some things which Christians as human beings are involved in as much as anyone else. Verbal abuse, blaming people, criticizing people, focusing on another person as what's wrong with your life and that's never true. You're in charge of your life. God has put you in charge of your own life. Physical violence, physical intimidation, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, isolation, isolating someone else, belittling someone, minimizing someone, financial control or control over travel, people who who have the keys to their own vehicle taken away from them, people who are locked inside their houses. This goes on. Gaslighting is a term. Gaslighting is a form of abuse where someone tries to convince the other person that, that the abusive behavior which has gone on is not real and the person's imagining it all in their own mind. People being set up to fail, people being given impossible tasks and then being attacked for them when that doesn't happen. Psychological abuse, gossip, slander, abusive process. This happens in workplaces. Coercion. Cyberbullying, harassment, humiliation, racism, sexism, other discrimination, age discrimination, education discrimination, and the list goes on. The problem is, this is real, and if you were breathing, this will have happened to you at some point. It may even be going on for you right now. And I want to say very clearly if these things have been going on or are going on for you, this is not the oneness that Jesus prays to the Father for you to have. Oneness in Christ is not abusive. Jesus makes it very clear the world might hate you because it hated him. But these are not the things that Jesus wants to be going on in his house, between his family members. This is not what Jesus has for you. It is not true. If you have or are on the receiving end of these kinds of behaviours, It is not okay. It is not true that that person is just an abusive person. No, it's not okay. It is certainly not of Christ. These behaviors are not of Christ. Often when someone is on the receiving end of these behaviors, they feel powerless, hopeless, and that if they do anything, the abuse will only get worse. That's not true. It is not true. There is a way out and there are steps to take for your safety And for justice to happen. That's the sharp edge that comes with people just like you and me not being able to actually disagree in a loving way. It becomes controlling or manipulative or abusive really quick. That's the sharp edge of abuse. If you are a person in this church, who has been knowingly or willfully abusing someone, it is not of Christ. I'll say it again. If you are a person in this church who has been knowingly or willfully abusing someone else, let me make this clear, it is not of Christ. And every one of us will give account to him for our life and our behavior. But let's every one of us bring our life to the Lord. We asked this morning that he would shine a light in. So let's every one of us pause on this for a moment and to think about the relationship we have with other Christians, those who are outside of the church, in other places of worship, those who are inside the church, those who are inside your family, inside your marriage, when we look at the disagreements that have happened or are happening, how much of the damage that goes on in our conflict, in our disagreement, is actually necessary? Are your disagreements, are my disagreements, characterized by some of these things, by teasing or by threatening or mocking or wanting to hurt the other person emotionally or trying to force them to do what we want? If those things go on in my disagreements, am I prepared, are you prepared to recognize that behavior for what it is, that it is not of Christ, and to admit that we've been doing it wrong and to seek help? Some of us need to hand in our tools of disagreement and our tools of conflict and get a new set of, If the Lord has his finger on your heart this morning, that the way you have been disagreeing with people causes unnecessary damage, hand your tools into the Lord Jesus Christ. If you need to talk to someone, talk to someone. If you want a phone number for someone to talk to, we can get you a phone number for someone to talk to. But this is serious because in our conflict, we misrepresent the Ancient of Days himself. You and I are works in progress. It's not easy letting the Lord shine a light in for us to concede that we need to change or that we need help. Sometimes we can want to look really good on the outside, particularly when it comes to things as serious as this. We don't want the mask to slip. We want everything to still look like it's chugging along okay. The problem is that these things can continue damaging us in the dark. And if I can be frank, we're fooling ourselves if we think that no one else can see it. It's possible that in trying to hold it together and to appear right and respectable, things get far worse underneath. But just for a moment, imagine a group of people who are obviously really struggling but openly being vulnerable with each other, being humble with one another, Caring and loving for one another, even in the hard stuff, that is a powerful, powerful statement about the love of God. So where do we end up this morning? This oneness that Jesus is talking about does not rid us of our distinctiveness, but it is grounded in love for each other. Jesus finishes this part of the prayer by saying this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory and the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Do you desire like Christ to continue making God known? because our relationship to one another makes God known. Whether we like it or not, it is continually saying something about God. It's my prayer that Christians in this country of ours would experience this oneness Jesus is talking about, (laughs) that we would seek to be one with our brothers and sisters all over the world. Oneness in Christ is not a removal of distinctiveness. I think there are some very big things we need to disagree on as Christians. I know I, I share this with elders and deacons all the time, but there are, there are Christians in this town, there are Christians kind of anywhere I go actually that I disagree with. And I think disagreeing is important. It's good to have people who disagree with you and who challenge you to go, really, is that what the Scripture says? And both of you can sit down and go back to the Scriptures together, to go, how have we arrived at this interpretation? Are we being as faithful as we can be? It does not mean that we cease disagreeing with each other. My prayer is that we will start to disagree and yet have such love that what happens is a powerful statement about honoring Christ. My prayer this morning is that you would have oneness in your relationships and in your marriages. The rate of divorce latest statistics is the rate of divorce in Australia sits at 54%. So of every 100 marriages, 54 of them will end in divorce. The church's statistics are much better. It's only 51%. Oneness. Oneness does not mean accepting or ignoring behavior, which is abusive, destructive, bullying or questionable. It means shining a light on it and seeking the unity of purpose, do we desire to represent Jesus faithfully? So let me leave you with some questions this morning. We'll do a song in just a moment and finish. Are you prepared to stop going along with the crowd so that people can see Jesus clearly? I know for some of you that's what the Lord has his finger on this morning. You've been going along with the crowd and the Lord is challenging you that you need to stop. So that Jesus can be seen more clearly? Are you prepared to start disagreeing with people so that Jesus becomes clear? Are you prepared to love others the way that Jesus does and maybe give up holding a grudge? Some of us have been hurt by other Christians. Are we prepared to give up that hurt back to the Lord? Maybe to forgive some brothers and sisters who have wounded us. Are you prepared to admit where you are at fault in loving others? To ask the Lord for forgiveness for a lack of love, that sometimes being right has been more important than being loving. And so in order to be right, we trample on other people and we still don't end up finding oneness. Perhaps this morning what the Lord has his finger on is that you need to become transparent, that there are some things going on in the dark in your life which are stopping oneness from happening between yourself and the Lord, perhaps between you and your spouse or your family or your other relationships. Are you prepared for the Lord to shine a light in? For some of us, we need to address our tools of disagreement. We need to swap them out. We need to recognize that maybe we've wounded some people and that we need to change the way we behave. Is Jesus worth it? Is this oneness that he talks about worth it? If it is for you, then let's do this together. Let us love one another without losing our distinctiveness. Let us seek oneness and unity based in the real humbling overflow of the love of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is hard stuff because we might have to give something up and change. Lord Jesus, you call us to yourself and you call us to be one with each other. And Lord, would you please apprentice us in that? Would you help us to be able to disagree and and to be distinct, but in such a loving way? Lord Jesus, would you help us to seek you in the scriptures alongside Christians from a whole bunch of different walks of life? Would you help us to seek you together? And if we disagree, we disagree, but we have such love for one another. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would know this kind of oneness. Would you help those of us in relationships to sift through those things inhibiting oneness in our relationships, those things which are not of eternal value. Lord Jesus, even those of us this morning who are feeling quite sharply the sword of your Spirit at work in us, outlining the way we have done conflict, Lord Jesus, I pray you would give us humility. Would you help us to understand and to process that maybe we need to give a tool of conflict up, for you to give us a tool which works towards oneness and unity. Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to you. We commit to you this season of Advent as we travel towards this wonderful celebration of your birth. Lord Jesus, we know that you are present here amongst us and that you will go out with us from this place. So, Lord Jesus, as we asked earlier, would we not simply engage with these questions on a Sunday morning, but would your word stay in us and continue at work in us all throughout this week? We ask this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.